0: The simple key theme for uh, the book of Numbers, it's just obedience versus disobedience. Just what's the fruit in our lives when we're obedient to the Lord and obedient to the Bible uh, versus the consequences and repercussions when we're disobedient to God and we're disobedient to His Word. Uh, The True name for the book of Numbers, it gets that name Numbers because of the genealogies that it has and the counting of people, but the ancient name for it is wanderings, and truly it's the wandering of the nation of Israel for these 38 years, these 40 years in the wilderness, and it gives us the highlights and the lowlights within these 38 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And again, this book is written for us. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 tells us, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 tells us, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, this word, this chapter, it's been written for our learning, our admonition, and it's an example for us, hopefully, of what not to do, right? If you've ever been walking and someone is not paying attention and they walk into a pole, right? Hopefully, it's an example of what not to do, correct? Right? Hopefully you don't try to do the same exact thing as they're going. But we learn by the example and pain of others. That, that's wisdom there. But in chapter 16, uh, we come to just another one of these low points within these 38 years of Israel. It's not like these things are happening one after the other. But it's time goes on and then this would happen. Time goes on. Something else happens. One last thing to note, just again for context, uh, for context. Moses has been getting through some difficult times. The Lord has given them the order, the rules, the regulation, how to go out, how to come in. But then in chapter 12, we see that his own brother and sister begin to complain about him. And accuse him about all of these false accusations. So he has to deal with his own brother, his own sister falsely accusing him. Then in chapter 13 and 14, perhaps his fear of these false accusations that Aaron and Miriam made towards him. He's a bit more lax and he follows the counsel of the different men in Israel. And they send these spies into the land. And ten spies give a false and fearful report and it keeps Israel from going in. There's repercussions for them disobeying the Lord. Chapter 15 we saw how the Lord he doesn't just leave us when we sin or when we mess up. God didn't just kick them out or get rid of the nation of Israel but he says hey I, I love you. I care about you. This is what I want you to do once you get into that promised land. Reminding them I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you and one day Maybe not you, but your sons and daughters will enter into this promised land. But chapter 16, we come to this rebellion of Korah. Maybe your Bible titles it the rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Verse 1 through 3 tell us, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, And on, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. So we have these different leaders, if you would. They take men, and now verse 2 tells us, They rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. Two hundred and fifty leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, "...and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord?" So we have these handful of men, and now they gather to themselves 250 other leaders within Israel, and they come and bring this complaint against Moses. He's accusing them, saying that they've taken upon this part of leadership and this influence that Moses is the one that hears from the Lord and speaks to Israel. They're saying that they are exalting themselves above the assembly of Israel. So some heavy accusations here. And before we go into this, we're going to look at a ton of scriptures and then we'll go through it quickly. But one question I did want to address is, Is there a biblical way to deal with church leadership and elders who are in sin and doing things in an unbiblical way? Because you do have church leaders and elders who are not walking right with the Lord and living in an unbiblical way. And they can take portions of scripture, specifically with Moses, and they twist them and they tell you to be quiet, sit in your corner and do nothing. And that's not biblical whatsoever. First and foremost, we should know and remind ourselves what the standard is for someone in church leadership. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, is there a way to deal with church leadership, elders, leaders, deacons, overseers, pastors that are doing things in an unbiblical way? First and foremost, we should realize the standard for them, the standard for me, Maybe this is just for me to remind myself here. First Timothy three, chapter one, uh, chapter three, verse one through five. We're gonna see this key word popping up over and over and over again. First Timothy chapter three, verse one tells us this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be. Blameless, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Later on in verse 10 in the same chapter it says, But let these also first be tested, let them serve as deacons, being found, what's that word again? Blameless. Blameless. In Titus chapter 1, a couple pages to your right, Titus chapter 1. Paul writing these pastoral epistles, that's what they're known as. He writes it to one son in the faith, Timothy. writes it to another son in the faith, Titus. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, Paul tells Titus, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be Blameless, as a steward of God, not self willed, not quick tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Again, this is a high standard for anyone that wants to serve the Lord as an elder, an overseer, a pastor, a deacon. We who are in leadership need to constantly be reminded of this standard. It's a standard that is found in God's word and it keeps us holy. And it keeps us healthy. Because it's only when we're holy and healthy that God can really use us. If we're sinful, if we're living a double life, we're gathering all this gunk in the gears that God wants to use us. So first and foremost, for us in leadership, we need to be reminded, we need to be blameless. That word blameless has the idea that nothing sticks. You can throw these accusations at them, but it just doesn't stick. Zach said what? Zach doesn't even use those filler words, right? Many Christians use those filler words. They don't want to say the F word, so they just replace it with another F word, right? Because that's different. It's not like the Lord looks at our heart or anything like that, right? That's what the Bible tells us. But we go through these different things. We make excuses for the movies we watch, the television shows, the things we drink, the things we do. But the standard for someone in church leadership is to be Blameless. Now, if someone in leadership is behaving in a way that is not blameless, these ideas may stick because of the way that they're living, what's the biblical way that we should address them? And I pray your heart in addressing them, it is a biblical heart. Because if you're trying to address someone who's doing something in an unbiblical way, by being more unbiblical, it's not going to work. And more often than not, what that's called is gossip. That's what that's called. When someone's doing something in an unbiblical way and you want to address it in yet another unbiblical way, that's just called gossip. And that's just all going to end up exploding into a big ball of carnality, fleshliness, and worldliness. Oftentimes, that's what happens. In Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be jumping all over the Bible tonight. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 Here it tells us the biblical way to address someone, not even church leadership, but any brother and any sister that sins against you. This is the way that you address them. And the idea always comes, oh, they didn't really sin against me. They sinned against another brother or sister. What we'll see later on is we're all part of the same body of Christ. And if someone sinned against your brother or sister, more than likely, that sin will affect you sooner or later. But Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So again, what's our goal if someone in church leadership is living in a way that's not blameless? Our goal, if a brother or sister has sinned against us, our goal is not to put them on blast. Our goal is not to tell everybody in the church what's going on. Our goal is not to make them look worse than they are so I can feel better about myself and how holy I am. Our goal is to gain your brother, to gain your sister. The strongest dictionary, therefore, gaining your brother or your sister is to win them over back to the kingdom of God, which none but the easily calmed, gentle, and forgiving. Enter in. I love that definition. Our goal is to win over our brother or sister back to the kingdom of God. And we have to be reminded the only way we enter into the kingdom of God is that we are gentle and lowly, that we are easily calmed, we're forgiving. That's the way we enter because that's how Jesus allows us to enter in the first place, right? He was gentle, He was forgiving, He was kind. And now if a brother or sister sins against us, and we act irrational, and it's just fuming emotions, that's not the biblical way to handle things. And we continue through this progression of Matthew 18 until that goal is accomplished of winning over our brother or sister back to the kingdom of God. I love how Jesus gives us specific words, right? Tell him his fault between you and him alone right he makes the emphasis you and him alone not you and him and five other people not you and him and 20 counselors on your way to talk to him right not you and him in the prayer meeting lord i want to pray god knows all the details of the prayer request right you don't have to tell him all the details of the gossip they said this they said that This said the lord knows Tell the fault between you and him alone. If that doesn't work, if the goal is not accomplished, you haven't won them back to the kingdom, then tell them their fault between you and him and one or two more. If the goal still hasn't been accomplished, now you tell them his fault between you, him, and someone in church leadership. And if that goal of winning them over back to the kingdom still isn't won, then yes, you send them out of the church And you treat them like a heathen. This is not just for us addressing leadership that's doing things in an unbiblical way, but for any brother or sister. But God's word is so awesome, He gives us more specifics on how to address church leadership living or acting or behaving in an unbiblical way. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 17 through 19. Paul gives us through the Holy Spirit exactly how to address this. He says in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Spirit says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And what we're seeing here with Korah and the group that he's gathered is there's 250 men gathering for these accusations against Moses, and there's no witnesses to this. It's just ideas, it's just hot air that Korah's throwing out there. And when we wait to make sure that this accusation against a leader and an elder is by two or three or more people, it keeps us from jumping onto someone's gossip train. It keeps us from jumping on someone's misery train. Because we all know that saying, right? Misery loves company. And sometimes someone just wants to complain about someone else because they took a stand against sin in their life. Because something happened with their family. Because of something of details you don't know. And now they just give all this gossip and all these lies. And now you're jumping to go to war with them. And it's just an empty accusation. This is found all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. God tells us, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. But by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Old Testament, to me, is always funny. It's interesting. Later on there in Deuteronomy 19, it says, If the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he had thought to do against his brother. Right? So now if it was a bunch of false accusations and that comes to light, now you give the consequences to that person of whatever they were accusing that other brother or sister about. Again, we should wait till there's two or three witnesses. Next, the heart with which we should have to address our elders, those in leadership, is to treat them with love and admonition. There, hopefully you're still there in 1 Timothy chapter 5. In verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men, exhort them as brothers. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. See, oftentimes when someone hurts us within a church, we're not trying to exhort them. We're not trying to love them as a brother or sister. We're trying to take their head off like an enemy, right? I know it's not you guys. Maybe that's just me, right? Someone hurts me, hurts my family, hurts my kids, right? You want to come at them. But the biblical way is to love them, to try to gain them back to the kingdom of God. We're to treat them as a father, as a brother, as a mother, as a sister with all purity. The problem is if we're honest, some of us are not treating our parents the way that they should be treated. There is no honor. There's no respect towards the men and women that changed our diapers and paid for everything in our lives. There's no honor. There's no respect. There's just contempt and ingratitude. That's a warning to us. And if that's sticking in your heart a little bit, it should. We should be grateful, loving, and respectful to our parents, even when we disagree with them. And as you grow into 18, 19, 20, and you come into those disagreements with your parents, you can disagree. But make sure it's with love, honor, and respect, and a ton of gratitude and love. So I'm asking you as pastor Please be willing to allow your brothers and sisters to address sin and unbiblical things in your life. I'm also asking you as a pastor to please be willing to address any concerns in leadership in a biblical way. That's something I'm asking you for. This keeps our body healthy. This keeps our church healthy and ready to be used by our master. The problem with Korah is not only did he not handle things in a biblical way, but it was all a lie. It was his personal rebellion against God and what God had called Korah to do. The area of ministry that God had given Korah, he was just rebelling against God, and now he takes it out on Moses and Aaron. And when we rebel against what God has called us to do, it's simply called pride. That's all that is. When we're rebelling against what God has given us, his blessings, it's called pride. And many people throughout Scripture struggle with it. Many of us today, if we're honest, we struggle with it. Saul, King Saul struggled with it. Absalom struggled with it. Even the disciples struggled with it. What was the disciples' favorite topic of conversation throughout the Gospels? Who's the greatest, right? It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't the little ones. It wasn't fish and chips. No, it was about, hey, which one of us is the greatest here? Even Peter struggled with it. Who's the greatest of the disciples? And I think that's why it's so special that Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you. Be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, you see, I'm sure Peter could think back on his great conversations and how he was the greatest disciple. Only to, in the moment of Jesus' greatest need, not only does he fall asleep on him several times, but then he denies him three times. And the only thing pride brings is God's resistance upon us. And what we need in life, what, we're, what we were created for, is fellowship with God. We were created for intimacy with God. But when pride rules and reigns in our heart, the very opposite happens. God's resistance comes upon us. Pride, what does that word mean? It's having too high of an opinion of one's own ability or one's worth. It's a feeling of being better than others. It's to think too highly of oneself. And this is our plague. All of us struggle with this, right? We have whole months that are literally pride month, right? Sin month. Having an opinion of one's own ability or worth. Feeling better about ourselves than others. I am better than that other person. I'm more holy than them. I deserve this more than that person. And what Proverbs 13 verse 10 tells us is only by pride cometh contention. That's what the King James Version tells us. The New King James says, By pride comes nothing but strife. So the first thing pride brings is God's resistance upon us. The second thing pride brings, and the only thing pride brings, is contention and strife. Right? How does a marriage go when you're filled with pride? When you're telling your spouse that your mom made that dish better than she did, right? How does that go? Contention and strife. That's all that that's bringing, right? When you're arguing about who spends more and in your pride you think you're better than your spouse. What does that bring? Nothing but contention and strife. Proverbs 11 verse 2 tells us, When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Wisdom. So with pride comes God's resistance, with pride comes contention and strife, and with pride comes nothing but shame. Isn't that what happened to Peter? Peter tells Jesus the same night, Lord, I will never leave you unlike these other disciples. I would die for you. And then the same night, he denies him three times. The shame that came upon Peter. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, we can turn there. Jude gives us a commentary on Korah and these sons of Korah, this family of Korah, and the reason why they rebelled and the reasoning behind their rebellion. What does this rebellion, this pride, look like? And in Jude chapter 1, verse 8, it tells us, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel... In contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, Have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. What Judas is telling us here is that rejecting authority, speaking evil of dignitaries, speaking evil about things you can't really understand, comprehend, speaking things of whatever you do not know, that's at the heart of Korah's rebellion. And if we don't want to rebel like Korah and we'll see the consequences he suffered, we need to make sure, man, am I uh, rejecting the authority God has placed in my life? That's one of the most important things for us as parents to do with our kids is to teach them to not reject authority, but to honor authority. If our kids are constantly rejecting us, being nasty to us, how do you think they're going to do with their teachers? with their bosses, with their spouses, with the government, right? It's not going to go well. One commentator said, The rebellion of Korah lies in the broader idea of a contemptuous and determined assertion of self against divinely appointed ordinances. Again, it's pride against what God has appointed. Are we there? Any of us there? I am angry against what the Bible has to say. I'm angry. I'm rebelling against what the Bible may have to say about marriage or sex, about pride, about gender. If we're there, that's a dangerous place to be. We go back to Numbers 16, and what verses 1 through 4 show us and reveal to us is that Korah, he was part of the tribe of Levi. He was a family member to Moses. He was Moses' cousin. And as a Levite, he was still receiving tremendous blessings from the Lord. But he thought he deserved more. He was given the great task of caring. You could just write down Numbers 4 verse 15. Korah was given the task of being able to carry the most holy things within the tabernacle. You see, the Kohathites... The sons of Korah, they didn't have to carry the construction supplies of the tabernacle. They didn't have to carry the poles. They didn't have to carry the wood planks. He didn't have to carry the tents and the fabrics. They were given the honor of carrying the pieces of furniture within the tabernacle. The same pieces that would have the presence of the Lord dwelling upon them. The same pieces that represent God's throne room in heaven. The same pieces that would represent the prayers of God's people going up into heaven. But for Korah, that was not enough. You see, pride at one point or another must have settled in Korah's heart. Gratitude wasn't settling in. Awe and reverence at God and God allowing him to do this, that's not what was settling in. It wasn't wonder. It wasn't humility. It was nothing but pride thinking of himself more highly. I deserve more. I should be doing more. I'm better. And Korah's pride led to him not being content with what God had called him to. And because he wasn't content with what God had called him to, he then began trying to undermine the authority that God had placed in his life. This rebellion against God and thinking he could do better than the authority God had placed in his life. Is that not what most teenagers go through, right? We think we do better than our parents. I love that uh, Mark Twain quote. I'm going to butcher it now. But all right, he says by the time he was uh, in his teens from 12 to 18, he just thought his dad was, did not know a single thing. And then once he turned 19, he was blown away at everything his dad learned in one year, right? It's absolutely blown away, right? As kids, we rebel against authority. We rebel against our parents. We think we can do better than them. We have to have that heart of humility just blown away that God allows us to do what we do and just honor the Lord and whatever authority he's placed in our life, even if it's not a perfect authority. You look at David's life. You look at Jonathan's life. They honored the authority that God had placed in their life even though they did not fully obey the authority that God placed in their life. You realize that? Jonathan didn't do everything that Saul told him to do, and yet he was able to honor and respect his father and the king of Israel. Korah rebelled against Moses and the authority that God had placed over Israel. And what the New Testament reveals to us is that Jesus is the one who gives each of us our callings. Jesus is the one who joins and knits the whole body together. He's the head of the body, and now he's the one that chooses to put things in the order that he chooses. So if we're in church, I know it never happens in church, right? But sometimes there's people in church, and they get angry. They get mad. Hey, I deserve that. I should be this. I could teach better than that person. I could cook better than that person. I would do better than they would. Have. I could sing better than them. When that begins to creep into our heart, you're not battling against me or anybody else in the church. You're battling against the authority of God within the church. And i going to have to run through these. I may going through 50 verses easier by adding another 100 verses to it, right? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 tells us that it's he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors. Jesus is the one that gives these different callings on the lives of different people. Then in verse 15 it says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body... Joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Again, Jesus is the one that gives each of us our callings. Jesus is the one that joins and knits each of us in our different part within the body. And now our reason for being here, it's for the equipping of the saints. And in the end of verse 16 says, When everybody's doing their share, it causes growth to the body for the edifying. That's the building up of itself in love. It's not a person that gets built up. It's not a personality that gets built up. It's not a family that gets built up. No, it's the whole body growing and being built up in love. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18 tells us that it is God himself who sets the members in the order that he pleases. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18, it says, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. So first, it tells us Jesus is the one that joins and knits each piece of the body. And now 1 Corinthians tells us that God himself has set the members, each one of them, within the body as he pleases. God is the one that said, hey, Korah, this is what I'm making you to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. Moses, this is what I'm making you to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. Oswald Chambers, he says, we have no right to judge where we should be put. Or to have preconceived notions as to what God is fitting us for. God engineers everything. Wherever he puts us, our one great aim is to pour out a whole heart of devotion to him in that particular work. That's where our goal and focus should be. Lord, this is what you've given me. I'm going to pour my whole heart in worship to what you've given to me. Not worried about this person or that person or that person. He then quotes Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. You're waking up in the morning and taking out the trash, do it with all your might. You're driving, you're on your way to work, do it with all your might. You're at work, whatever you have to do, whatever task, do it with all your might. You're changing baby's diapers, you do it with all your might. Cooking dinner, do it with all your might. Having to learn algebra so you could teach your kids algebra, do it with all your might, right? Whatever our hands find to do, may we see it as a holy work. You're serving here in the church, in the cafe, in the parking lot. You're serving behind the scenes, do it with all your might. You see, if you and I have a problem where God has placed us within the body of Christ I encourage you and I remind myself, get alone with the Lord and ask him, Lord, search my heart. I'm not content where I'm at. Lord, search my heart. What's going on? And in the meantime, work as hard as you can with what he has given you and what he has called you to do. So often we're terrible at a certain job and we think, man, if I get this other job, then I'm going to be amazing, right? Doesn't work that way. In Luke 16, verse 10, Jesus says, He who is faithful in what is least is also faithful in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Again, you gotta be faithful with whatever small thing God has given you. We need to be consumed with doing the will of God. See, Korah lost his focus on doing God's will, and he just wanted his will. He just wanted his pride, he just wanted his desires. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there's still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Family, what is it that satisfies you in life? What is it that satisfies you in ministry and in doing the work of the Lord? Is it the applause of men? Is that what satisfies you? Is it the power, the position, the the name, the new title before your name? Or is it knowing that you are doing the will of Him who sent you? Is it knowing that you are finishing not your work, you're finishing His work? That's what satisfied our Savior, our Lord, the author and finisher of our faith. Hopefully, that's what satisfies us. And our work needs to be done out of love, gratitude, and diligence. We need to be diligent with whatever the Lord's given us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 11, it tells us to not be lagging in diligence, but to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Don't be lagging in diligence, but instead be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We need to live this life serving God with all of our abilities. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul likens it to men and women that run in different races and there's only one gold medal, right? If you're running a race that's worth running, there's only one gold medal, right? And Paul tells us to run as if there's only one prize, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Is that the way we're serving the Lord? As if there'd be only one prize out there. David Guzik says, Korah needed to learn this essential lesson. We should work hard to fulfill everything God has called us to be. At the same time, we should never try to be what God has not called us to be. You see that balance? Whatever God has given you, do that with all your might. And stop being obsessed with what God has not called you to be. This is called a lack of contentment, right? Not being content with what we have and the blessings and the privileges God gives us leads to covetousness. That's the opposite of contentment. It's being covetous. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul tells Timothy, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. The more content you are with life, just the more happy you are, right? doesn't matter how much you have or how little you have. Man, you're just grateful. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6 tells us, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Are we content with what we have? The blessings God has given us, right? So many commercials lead to us not being content with what we have, right? So much of social media leads us to not being content with what we have. We didn't know it existed 30 seconds ago, but all of a sudden we need it, right? We're not happy. That's exactly what I need. That's a lack of contentment. And even people that have great riches, even people that can have all their fleshly desires, they can still be covetous. You could think of David with Bathsheba. David had absolutely Everything king of Israel, richest man in Israel, had multiple wives at this point, and yet he looks and he sees Bathsheba and he says, bring her to me. You see, you'll never arrive to a certain point in your bank account. You'll never arrive to a certain point in your job. You'll never arrive to a certain point in serving within Calvary Chapel that you'll be content if you're not content in the Lord and grateful for what he's done in your life. You'll always be on this hamster wheel of wanting more and wanting more and wanting more because that's a fleshly desire within us. Nathan, after he tells David, David, you are the man, he tells him in verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. You see, oftentimes we're ungrateful, not because we don't have what we need, but because there's something else out there as well. If we're honest, we have more than what we need. What we're lacking is humility and gratitude. What we're lacking is a low view of who we are and just being blown away that God even allows us to be alive, to just be blown away that I have the health that I have and that Jesus would die for me, that he would save me. When that's the mind and heart that we have, it protects us from covetousness. If there's more in this life that you believe you don't deserve, I promise you, you'll be in a much more joyful place than if you're that person that believes there's much more in this life that you do deserve, but life is just simply unfair. You just haven't gotten what you deserve yet. It's just a bad place to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Again, this here is the whole... 45 minutes in one set of verses. You see, Paul had a low view of himself. Paul saying, I'm not worthy to be an apostle because of my past. But forget my past. Look at what the grace of God has allowed and created. And in view of my past and in view of God's grace, now I'm going to work harder than everyone else. And he says, I'm not going to work harder than everybody else because of me or my strength. I'm going to work harder than everybody else because of the grace of God which was with me. You see, there's many men and women like Korah that desire more. They want the eldership. They want the pastorship. They want the name and the title. But the way it works in God's economy is usually it's the people that don't want it. The people that are fighting with God, Lord, I don't, want, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I'm not qualified, is what Moses said. I-, I can't speak. I can't do that. I can't go on behalf of you and speak to Pharaoh. These are the men and women that God uses. The men and women that are telling God and others their laundry list of accomplishments, their laundry list of gifts, those are usually the last people that God wants to use. Because just like Gideon and the 300 men, all the glory would go to themselves instead of the glory going to the Lord. Again, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. We jump back to Numbers 16 and now we'll run through this. Verse 4 and 5. Moses, he hears these accusations and he falls on his face and he speaks to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning... The Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, who he's set apart, and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. One thing to notice right off the bat, if you're the one that's receiving, receiving false accusations, is to realize what Moses does here. Moses stops and prays. He doesn't answer them back right away. He doesn't defend himself. No, Moses stops He prays, and then he answers. Then he responds. So often, if we're honest, this would save us from a lot of trouble and a lot of arguments, right? Someone says something to us, our flesh flares up. What we need to do is fall on our face and pray, and then answer. Here he says, hey, God, he issues a challenge to Korah. and He says, says, hey, tomorrow morning, God's going to reveal who is his and who's not, who's holy and who's not. Verse 6, do this, take censers, Korah, and all your company, put fire in them, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. You see, Moses knew the truth. And when you know the truth, more often than not, 99.9% of the time, you don't have to defend yourself. Moses doesn't defend himself. He knows the truth, he prays, he answers, he steps back and says, you know what, tomorrow God's going to answer. And God's going to reveal who's really his and who's not his. Another thing we can see here in verse 5 is really the whole point of serving. What is the whole point of serving? So the church can get free labor, is that the whole point of serving, right? Is the whole point of serving so we can feel better about ourselves? No, the whole point of serving is to be nearer to him. That's the whole point of serving. Moses says he's going to reveal who's holy and he's going to cause him to come near to him. You see, I don't like getting on people to serve because if you don't want to serve, I don't know if I want you serving if you don't want to serve, right? That's first and foremost. But the whole reason why we serve is because we desire to draw nearer to him. It's not for a title. It's not to feel better about ourselves. It's not because we're going to be holier. It's simply because we want to draw nearer to him. Verse 8, he says, Then Moses says to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, Is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you, once again here, to bring you near to himself and to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation and serve them? And that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you. And are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? Moses, he speaks truth here. At the end of verse 7, he says, hey, I'm not the one taking too much upon myself. You sons of Levi, you're taking too much upon yourself. Then in verse 9, Moses sees that this false accusation is rooted in ingratitude and pride. He's saying, come on guys, don't you see all the blessings God has given you? Don't you see where the Lord has allowed you to serve? He's separated you. He's brought you to Him. He's called you His own sons and daughters. Is that not enough for you? And if being saved is not enough for you, nothing in this world will ever be enough for you. We have to find that contentment in God. If that contentment is not in God and our relationship with God, nothing else will lead to that contentment. Verse 12, Then Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing of milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Again, we see how twisted these men have it. They don't even want to see Moses face to face. And now they're saying the land of milk and honey was behind them. The land of milk and honey was Egypt, where they were in slavery for 400 years. They say, Moses, you're acting like a prince over us. You're trying to kill us in the wilderness. Verse 14. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Then Moses was very angry, and he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company will be present before the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put a fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. I'll have self-control and stop there. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a good place to stop. They had to stop. They waited all night, right? They got their sensors. They put in the fire, the smoke, the incense. They had to wait all night. But we know, right? If you've been paying attention through the Book of Numbers, anytime there's a dispute, and the presence of God comes in the camp, right? There's a reckoning to be had. There's a reckoning to be had. But First Corinthians, chapter eleven, all right? It's good, even in what we've looked at. To look at our own lives and consider all that Jesus has done, his work, his sweat, his perfection, his blood, his agony, his humility, and then to look at our lives. So examine our lives and how are we acting. But there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread Worship team, you can come up and uh, pastors will be ready. And as we take this time to take communion, it's just like we mentioned earlier in the Bible study. It's important for us to take time alone and ask the Lord, Lord, search my heart. Lord, search my heart. Reveal to me if there's any wicked way in me. Lord, reveal to me if, if pride is what's going on. Lord, the reason why I'm stuck in life right now, God, this rough patch in my marriage, this rough patch at work, this rough patch with my job, with my family, Lord, is it sin? Lord, is it my own pride? Am I thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think? And then the main person to think about when it comes to pride and humility, it's Jesus Christ. There's no greater example of a being that should be filled with pride And yet it's just filled with humility. Philippians chapter 2, right? You could read that when you go home. Just to look at the humility of Jesus Christ. So we look at him. We look at his death. We look at his sacrifice. And then examine ourselves. Lord, am I being as humble as you were to my family? Lord Jesus, am I being as humble? Am I giving of myself as much as you gave to my spouse, to my church family? Lord, am I giving back to you in the same way that you've given to me? Lord, you gave your absolute best. You gave your only begotten Son. Examine yourself and ask, Lord, what have I given to you as of late? How have I shown my worship to you? How have I shown my gratitude to you that I'm I'm alive tonight? I'm healthy. I have a family. I have a church. Lord, how have I shown you that gratitude and that heart of worship? So again, as we take communion now, you'll be given the elements. We'll be worshiping together. We'll be praying together. When you're ready, you eat that bread and then you drink that cup. But to consider Jesus and all that he's done for us, his heart of humility, even though he was reviled, he reviled not in return. It's a great night to think of Jesus, his sacrifice for you and me, the sin and the wages of sin that I deserve. And yet how great and merciful he is. So, Lord, we just thank you for tonight, Lord. We thank you for the blessing and the privilege to go through your word. Lord, we thank you for the blessing and the privilege of communion tonight. To be able to sit back and worship and in your presence, in the presence of our brothers and sisters. And to think back on that night. To think back on your sacrifice. To think back how you died for me. You died because of my sins. And Lord, help us. Help us to examine ourselves, Lord. Help us to examine ourselves, Lord, besides this heart that is so deceitful. Besides our heart that is so wicked. Lord, help us to tap into you, Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to examine the reality of where we are, Lord. May no one here be that person that when we arrive and we meet you face to face, we hear you say, depart from me. I never knew you. Lord, help us to examine ourselves in and through your Holy Spirit tonight in light of your sacrifice, in light of your love and grace and mercy. Lord, if there's any husband here that's not treating his wife properly, if there's any wife not submitting to her husband as she should, if there's any sons and daughters, Lord, co-workers, bosses, not treating others as you've treated us, God, Lord, forgive us tonight. Convict us tonight. If any of us are holding on to our sin, our pride, if any of us think we deserve more than what we have right now, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to examine ourselves tonight. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.